Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't met you before, I'm Nate. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, today's a special day. But uh, before we get into the word, I did want to give a little bit of an update on our Thailand missions team. Last uh, week, we prayed for a beautiful group that was heading to Thailand of uh, high school students and some young adults. And uh, they're doing great. God is opening some great doors for them. I mean, I got the treasure of a lifetime. One of the leaders actually sent me a photo of one of my daughters sharing the gospel with an elderly man who had never seen a foreigner in his entire life in one of the villages that they went to. And uh, I don't think she closed the deal, though, so I'm going to have to talk to her about that. (laughs) But uh, what, what they're saying is that especially the teams that are going out to the villages, and they broke up the, the large team into three teams, but the teams that are going out to the villages, the pastors in these villages are very thankful because what they're saying is this is helping us with gospel saturation. A lot of these uh, people in their communities have never heard about Jesus before, never heard the name of Jesus before. So uh, what our kids are doing is kind of helping to stir up Uh, an understanding of Jesus, like for the very first time. So not a lot of people getting saved there yet, although they have seen a handful of conversions in uh, Chiang Mai, which they've also been ministering in. So just beautiful stories. They've been doing vacation Bible schools. They've been going to uh, uh, women's shelters from women who had been previously trafficked but rescued. They've gone to labor camps, uh, universities to share the gospel. But uh, God is just blessing them, and it's just so exciting to, to see the Lord using uh, their lives. They 30 hours of travel, and then when they got there, they had a training night, and then they went to sleep, and they woke up the next morning and just got right to it. So they are going to come home pooped, but with just tons of great stories of just meeting God and seeing God work uh, in their lives. And I think they're having a ton of fun, too, while they do it. So just wanted to give you that a brief little update. Uh, last week, you guys know we restarted our study in the Psalms uh, by looking at Psalm 11. And next week, we're going to pick that back up. Pastor Manny is going to teach Psalm 12. Uh, and then uh, I'm actually going to be out for a little bit. A lot of you have asked me if I'm going to do my traditional time away, getting up to Lake Tahoe. And uh, we are, and that'll be starting next week. So I'm really looking forward to that, Um, especially this year, my vocal cords. It'll just be nice to not talk uh, for for a little while from the pulpit and get rested up. What I'm hoping is that I can come back and actually sing during the worship time because I can't do that right now, and it drives me crazy. So I'm looking forward to that. We'll see if we get there. But the rest of the Sundays in July, the other pastors, other pastors in the church will be teaching through uh, the Psalms, and then I'll be back Uh, in August, continuing that psalm study. Uh, But today, what we're going to do is uh, visit a little verse from the book of Titus. You can turn there if you'd like to. Uh, It's a verse that we looked at at our men's conference uh, this last February, Titus 2, verse 2. And uh, the reason that I'm doing this is, uh, as many of you know, and you've got the little card on the way in, 
Uh, but today marks the beginning of Pastor Jeff Buck's retirement years. And so I'm going to give a little message about him. I've actually entitled the message for today, Jeff is the Man, which he, <laughs> he hates that title. But uh, he is the man. And uh, Titus 2 verse 2 is about a godly man of God. And so Jeff is the man described in Titus 2 verse 2 is what I'm trying to say. Uh, but, you know, before getting into it, you know, Jeff is, has had a marvelous pastoral career. You know, he began in the Midwest, uh, then pastored on the East Coast, and 15 years ago came out here to the West Coast, to the Monterey Peninsula, where he grew up as a boy. And for over 50 years, Jeff has loved God's people, served God's people, led God's people, taught God's people. And um, he's done all this scandal-free. You know, his, his hands are clean, his heart is clean. He's just been a faithful man for these five decades of pastoral work. He's poured out his life as a sacrifice to God. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this about Jeff, but whenever he plays praise publicly, one of the prayers that he often prays is he says, God or Lord, we love you today. It's a prayer that he prays often. I remember when he first started praying that, I was actually a little bugged by it. I'm like, what do you mean? Today? Like yesterday you didn't love him, or tomorrow you're not going to love him? But I came to discover this was his way of saying, Lord, afresh today in this moment, I'm making a decision to center my life upon you. And I think that's been the secret to his life. He's centered himself upon God. He's centered himself upon the Lord. In fact, just a few weeks ago or a couple of months ago, we had his final message to us as a staff pastor. He'll speak again from this pulpit. He told me I'm not allowed to ask him for at least six months, though. So look out for him sometime in December or January. But uh, his last message, what did he preach on? I was so interested to see what, what's he going to share with us. And he shared with us all of these uh, deeply theological songs from the close of a handful of New Testament letters. They're all pointing to God. They are actually, I don't think he intended it this way, but they are actually quite often the things that the biblical authors, the apostles wrote when they were concluding their letters as if to say, you know, I'm done writing, I'm done speaking, I'm done teaching right now, but I commit you into the hands of God. Think about who God is, deepen your understanding of who God is, love God, serve God, center your life around and upon him. And that's been Jeff. And I think that his retirement gives us as God's people an opportunity to celebrate the mature godly women and godly men that are among us. It's important for us to do. We hear quite often that Christians are all terrible, that pastors are all terrible, uh, that uh, men are all terrible, uh, but it's important for us to celebrate and to rejoice when we see that that's actually not the case. Yeah. Now, in Titus 2, uh, Paul was writing to a young pastor who was on an island out in the Mediterranean called Crete, and uh, he was organizing the church there. And Paul wrote a letter to him, giving him directions on what to do. And in Titus chapter 2, uh, Paul told Titus, there's four groups in the church that I want you to address, and this is what I want you to teach them about. So he said, here's what I want you to say to the older men, 
the older women, the younger women, and the younger men. And uh, today, in honoring Jeff, um, he's definitely in the older man category. And uh, so that's the category we're going to consider. We're just going to look at Titus 2, verse 2 together. And as we're studying this today, you might say to yourself, well, I'm not an older man, or I'm a woman, and so I don't relate to this. But Uh, older men in the church and in the church community are vital. It's good for us to have a vision of what they should be and what they can be. All of us, whether we're headed there or not ourselves, personally, biologically, we've got to have a vision for this. It's beneficial to us, so I think you're going to be edified as we think about what this man looks like. But this is what Paul said in verse 2. He said, older men are to be sober-minded, that's one, dignified, two, self-controlled, three, and then four, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So older man is to be these four things, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, and sound in, and then the areas he's to be grounded in are faith, love, and steadfastness. Now, of course, we live in a time where uh, you know, men have, in, a lot of times men do really bad things. Uh, we even have a phrase for it in our modern time. You've probably heard it before. Maybe you've even said it before, but toxic masculinity, right? I, I think I understand the idea. The idea is that men are capable of great evil and sometimes do great evil. Uh, they can harm families and generations, and uh, they can wreak havoc on churches and communities and uh, do great harm in the world in which we live. But I think that in our modern time, a lot of people have uh, reversed those terms, confused those terms, and to them, um, all masculinity is toxic. Uh, But the masculinity that the Bible describes is an absolute gift. It's beautiful. It's uh, something that brings healing to families and churches and society. And that's what Jeff has been emblematic of for us. And so we get a chance to celebrate this type of man. Now, uh, when Paul wrote this, you know, like I said, there's these four categories, older men, older women, younger women, and younger men. That's the exact order that he uh, wrote of them in. And uh, it seems that he did that because older men are kind of a cornerstone in the church. Uh, Other people can build off of their stability, their wisdom, their strength. And the Bible is filled with examples of older men who blessed God's people abundantly. Uh, Caleb and Joshua come to mind. They were older than everybody else in all of Israel. All the, everybody else in their generation died off in the wilderness, but uh, Caleb and Joshua were alive, leading the people of Israel into victory in their old age. Noah, uh, he built the ark as an older man and saved his household and humanity all the way into his latter years. Abraham and the patriarchs did some of their best works as old guys. The gospel, uh, or excuse me, the book of Revelation was written by the apostle John when he was probably in his 80s or in his 90s. And uh, Paul himself, the author of Titus, the verse that we're reading today, he was uh, served Jesus all the way into the end of his life as a relatively old man. But the question that we might want to ask at the beginning of this is, who, who qualifies for being called an older man? Uh, uh, older and younger are very relative terms, right? 
I mean, when I, when I was in my early 20s, I thought, I thought that somebody who was 45 years old, like I couldn't even imagine it. I couldn't even imagine what it would be like to be that old. That was just ancient to me. And now I've really changed my mind on that subject. I don't feel the same way. And now the Bible gives us a, a wide range of ages. You know, Jesus died at around the age of 33. Methuselah in the book of Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, lived to be 969. Who is old, <laughs> in other words, is the question. Uh, well, the term that Paul used is the same term that he used to describe himself when he wrote his letter to Philemon, the book of Philemon. And uh, he was probably about 60 when he wrote that letter. Uh, John the Baptist's dad used this term, older man, when he argued with the angel about having a child in his old age because he said, I'm, I'm in the category where we don't have kids anymore. So you might think of it in that uh, way. Uh, but the term is also found outside of the Bible in ancient literature. Uh, Philo and Hippocrates, for instance, use the word to describe the sixth stage of life, which they said was age 50 to age 56. So taken together, it seems reasonable to say that this is a stage that we enter into around our mid-50s or our early 60s, which strikes me as interesting because that's about the time that Pastor Jeff came to us in the first place 15 years ago. I think he was 53 years old when he moved to the Monterey Peninsula to serve us. So all we've gotten to see is Pastor Jeff serving his church, his, this body of believers, during the era of his older years. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, he was probably just a wild and crazy man before age 53, but that's not the case. He built up to what he was when he came to us, uh, but uh, what a great guy he's been. Now, what does Paul say about the older man? So let's look at those four things that I mentioned. The first one, number one, is that older men should be uh, sober-minded. Sober-minded. Some versions call this temperance or sobriety. Uh, we should not blow past the fact that at minimum what Paul means is that older men in the church should be physically sober men. I think there is a temptation that comes in the last quarter or in the last third of life. You know, a lot of the heavy lifting has been done. The career is built. The home is secured. The income is solid. The kids are raised. And on top of all this, there can be a tendency to be discouraged about what you see in the world, discouraged about life, and no longer full of optimism about what's coming. But the Christ-following man does not decide that he's put in enough work and is a little frustrated with kids these days, so now it's time to kick back and drink up. Uh, he might enjoy a glass of wine, but he won't allow glasses of wine to fog his mind because he knows that his mind is still useful. There's still people that will need his counsel, will need his encouragement, will need his attention, and his mind needs to be sharp for the battle that he's engaged in. And this physical sobriety is emblematic of the way of this older man that Paul is describing his whole life. Everything about the older man of God is sober. Uh, he's learned what is godly and what isn't godly. He's learned what is healthy and what isn't healthy. He's learned the destructive nature of the passing pleasure of sin. 
He's weighed the cost of self-indulgence and he's determined that the price is too high and that the payout isn't worth it. Now, Jesus, of course, did all of these things, was this man perfectly, and Jesus, of course, was sober-minded. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was hard to be around. Uh, He wasn't. And in fact, his accusers, uh, they accused him of, to use, I think from the King James Version, they accused him of being a wine-bibber. I've always loved that word. It means that they thought that Jesus, they accused him of being a a party animal. They're like, you're just uh, this joyful kind of man. And uh, you you have to understand where they were coming from. It was mostly Pharisees that were saying this, so tons of fun in that group. Uh, But they they just thought, you know, he wasn't a wine-bibber, but they just thought, you have so much joy. Yeah, that was Jesus. But he was also beautifully sober-minded. He refused on the cross, a mind-numbing concoction that would have numbed his pain, choosing instead to suffer the complete agony of the cross. Jesus refused to bow down to Satan as a quick way to gain the kingdoms of this world and the temptation in the wilderness, and chose instead to do the hard work of redemption. Jesus never lost focus. He never got distracted. He pressed in So that's what the godly older man also tries to do. He wants to avoid excess and extravagance. He won't let himself become diluted or intoxicated by anything in life. He's sober-minded. He's serious, even in his older years, about God, about God's kingdom and the potency of the gospel. He knows that he has got to, like Joshua and Caleb and Moses, fight for holiness in his life until the day of his death. His church attendance doesn't slip into sporadic affiliation with his local congregation because his kids are now gone from the home, but instead develops into deeper involvement with God's people. Uh, He might be done raising a family if he'd had one, but now he uses his time to raise God's sons and daughters. And that's what Pastor Jeff has been. He has thrown his life into the next generations. In fact, this is one of the things that I think has made him effective and will keep him being effective in the years to come. I, I grew up in a pastor's home. I've been around pastors my entire life. I know tons of pastors. And one thing I've noticed is that uh, pastors that are older than me, they either really believe in the next generation and are behind them, or they're very condescending towards the next generation and think that nothing good can come from them. And Jeff has always had a belief that the Spirit of God with the gospel of Christ can harness people young and old for great fruitfulness in their era and generation. And that support has meant so much to me over the years. But this older man, this older person is sober-minded. Uh, there's a marathon coach, a great marathon or running coach named Hal Higdon, and uh, he gives this advice concerning running a marathon. He said, focus hardest when it counts most. If you find it difficult to concentrate during the full 26 miles of a marathon, save your focus for the miles when you need it most, the second half. I think that's great advice for life. And that's what Jeff has been. He's been a man in this second half of life who has been incredibly sober-minded and focused. 
Now, this doesn't mean, like I said, that Jeff is no fun to be around. In fact, quite the opposite. He doesn't take himself very seriously at all. You know, some people, it's kind of like a delicate thing to tease them or make fun of them in a, in a joking kind of way. It's super easy to do that with Jeff. He thinks he is worthy of being made fun of. Uh, I, I love to tease him because... When he's walking around the church offices, when you all aren't here, he, it's like he's incapable of going to, from point A to point B without singing or humming a song under his breath. So I love to tell him, Jeff, be quiet. You're ruining the vibe. You're a terrible singer. You know? And he, he just loves to laugh at that. That's him. But he also doesn't allow himself to become distracted with things that don't matter. He stayed focused on God. He still meditates on the word. He still spends time with Jesus every single day, personally, in his own life. He loves serving other people. Sober-mindedness is what makes him want to spend his retirement years not collecting seashells on the beach, but pouring into younger family members and younger pastors. Sober-mindedness is what made him take a step of faith 15 years ago to leave a very secure position in a really big church to come help us, mostly by helping me. He didn't want to coast off into the pastoral sunset, but he wanted instead to roll up his sleeves and get to work in the mess called Calvary Monterey. <laughs> Only a sober-minded man would make a decision like that. Okay, the second thing, though, that Paul said that older men should be is not only sober-minded, but number two, dignified. You see that there in verse two, dignified. What does that mean? Well, other translations give this word a little color. They say uh, that it could be translated worthy of respect, venerable, uh, sensible, serious. I think what this means is that the dignified older man, he's substantive. Uh, he's not like cotton candy. There's substance to this man. Uh, he's the right kind of serious. You know, some people are very serious about the wrong things. The, the godly man is serious about the right things. He's not doomy, uh, gloomy, dour, and self-consumed, but real and unnerved and focused. He's worthy of respect from other people. He treats other people well. Uh, being dignified means that he's not too comfortable or casual or loose with the opposite sex. He doesn't talk down to young people. He stays out of the gutter because he's dignified. He has honor. Uh, his life is not frivolous, trivial, or superficial. He's not vulgar. He takes immorality seriously. He craves holiness. He wants to be like Jesus. He's dignified, in other words, impressive and worthy of respect. Uh, the dignified man, I think, looks into the Bible and loves the dignified way that Jesus led his life. Jesus was determined to go to the cross, set his face like a rock to Mount Calvary so that he could die for the sins of the world. And when Jesus spoke, nobody spoke like him. He had a confidence and a clarity and authority that no one else possessed. His life and his words had weight to them. Jesus was father-focused and people-oriented. He lived a life that counted, dignified. And older men who are dignified like that, like Jeff, they've learned so much about the Lord, about themselves, and about life. Older men like this know that God is faithful, so they don't panic and fret like they did when they were young. 
They know that God is good. So they, they trust that he'll somehow repurpose every event in their lives for God's glory. They know that God is love, so they're secure in their relationship with him as sons of God. And they know that God is holy, so they avoid anything that would pain the holy heart of God and want to increase in personal experiential holiness on this side of eternity. This man, this dignified man, finds the phrase in Psalm 1 that says that the blessed man will bear fruit in his season, and he craves that season. He abides in Christ every single day, not as a way to earn God's favor, not as a lucky charm. If I read my Bible, God is going to owe me. No, he does it because he's learned that those who abide in Christ bear much fruit, and that's what he wants more than anything. His heroes, this dignified man, aren't actors who live in luxury or leaders who have great power. He isn't distracted by shiny objects or beautiful women or thrones of authority. His heroes aren't the Godfather or Tony Stark or John Wick. Instead, he resonates with men like the Apostle John, who church history tells us in his older years had to be carried up to the pulpit to muster enough strength to be able to say little children love one another. This dignified man admires men like John Wesley, who, after his 86th birthday, expressed remorse that he was no longer able anymore to study the Bible for 15 hours a day and was now, because of his old age, sleeping in all the way to 5.30 a.m. <laughs> the dignified older man does not have a feeling of immortality or invincibility. He's seen too much. He's buried people he loves. He's seen terrible things, wayward children, church splits, unwanted illnesses, surprising divorces, failed businesses. He's seen betrayal and sickness and death and decay. He's seen presidents and their promises come and go. Life has sobered him, so he's decided to spend his life well. He no longer believes that human effort and plans and ingenuity can usher forth the utopia that we long for, but still he is not hopeless. His eyes are on God and his kingdom. He believes the gospel. He longs for Christ's return, and he is dignified about it. And this has been Jeff Buck for our church. He has served our church with total dignity. He's not behaved shamefully. He's sought to have clean hands and a clean heart. He's not abused his position or taken advantage of people. His life has not been frivolous in any way that I have ever observed or could imagine. He is a dignified man. I can't tell you how many times the pastors and I have been in a meeting together discussing some perplexing issue, maybe a pastoral counseling emergency, maybe uh, a project that we need to make a decision about, or maybe a future-oriented thing in the church. And the rest of us, without the perspective and sometimes the, the fright or the worry, uh, Jeff will just sit there in dignity and strength. And I love that point in the meeting where I'll finally look at him and say, Jeff, what do you think? And just what comes out of his mouth, just a confidence in God, just a trust in God. You know, almost like, hey, thanks for letting us 
like talk about it for a little bit and spin our wheels. But man, what you shared, that's the word of the Lord for this moment, a dignified man. But thirdly, Paul also said that older men should be self-controlled. Other translations render this word as sensible, using good judgment, prudent, and wise. What this means is that the older godly man has gained self-mastery. Not perfectly, but generally. Now, just in case you're not an older man and you're feeling like, okay, I'm off the hook with this self-controlled one, it's actually the common thread through all four quadrants of the church that Paul spoke to. He wanted older women to talk to the younger women about how they should be self-controlled, so both parties are practicing it. And then to the young men, Paul was like, I just got a bottom line, my directions for the young guys. And so he said, here's the one thing you guys need to do, be self-controlled. That's it, just focus on that. If you guys can get that down, then there will be so much good stuff that comes out of your life. Now this self-control is... Uh, powerful. One definition of self-control is this. Obedience has to do with actions, but self-control has to do with emotions and how we deal with them. Do our emotions control us, or do we control our emotions? I like that definition. It came from a book about child raising, and it's actually about toddlers. Uh, Toddlers need to learn self-control, and so do we as grown-ups. Now, the word that Paul used, it derives from a combination of the word for save and the word for mind. In other words, the mind has been saved. And don't so many of us this morning, we rejoice that when Jesus came into our lives, that's exactly what he did. He saved us comprehensively. That in part means that he saved our minds. And we go through a process of mind renewal as we walk with God. And the self-controlled man or woman has understood that. The self-controlled man knows who he is in Christ. He's saved, he's new, he's redeemed, he's born again, he's a new creature filled with the Spirit under the new covenant and able to live in the resurrection power of Christ. He's been saved from the old, unregenerate, deathly life far from God under the law lived in his own strength. He is saved as he abides in Jesus He can be self-controlled. And the self-controlled man, of course, looks at Jesus and sees how Jesus was self-controlled. He always did that which pleased the Father. When Jesus was reviled, he ruled his spirit and would not revile in return. When Jesus was beaten, he mastered himself and submitted to the cross. What a weapon self-control is. It's powerful. Dallas Willard described it this way, self-control is the steady capacity to direct yourself to accomplish what you have chosen or decided to do and be, even though you don't feel like it. Self-control means that you, with a steady hand, do what you don't want to do when that's needed and do not do what you want to do when that is needed. The self-controlled man knows that he wants this, but that he needs Christ's power to help him. So he spends time in the word and prayer with Jesus every day. The self-controlled man knows that frayed nerves and fatigue 
war against his resolve, so he fights to eat well and sleep well. The self-controlled man knows that even God rested from his work, so he uses times of Sabbath as a way to protect himself from sin-inducing busyness. The self-controlled man knows that there will be times when he'll feel weak against temptation, so he develops and leverages godly friendships to help him stand. The self-controlled man also knows, knows that he will lose some battles against the flesh, so he practices honesty with all the right people as a way to cast disinfecting light on the bacteria of sin. To illustrate self-control, we could think about two men from the Bible. The first would be Joseph. As a teenager in the book of Genesis, Joseph was betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery in Egypt. A man named Potiphar purchased him, and Joseph served him well. Potiphar's house prospered so much under Joseph's care that Potiphar ceased involving himself in any meaningful way in his household management. He entrusted everything into Joseph's care except, of course, for his wife. She, though, lusted after Joseph, and she threw herself at him day after day. He feared God, and he respected his master, so he always resisted her until one day she caught him alone, grabbed him by the garment, and begged him to lie with her. But Joseph wriggled free from his garment and ran from the house. He suffered false accusations that cost him prison time, but at least his integrity was intact. He was self-controlled when he fled that sexual immorality. On the flip side of that self-control coin, though, we could think of Solomon. Solomon, as the son of David, began well as the king of Israel. As he prospered, Israel prospered. But as he aged, he wandered from the Lord. Foreign women began to steal his heart. Pretty soon, Solomon amassed a harem beyond the fantasies of any ancient king. And as his heart drifted, so did his life. He was controlled by something else. Self-control for Solomon was a distant memory. He sank into despair and powerlessness. He came under God's disciplinary hand. And as he sank into the slough of despond, he took Israel with him. The man who should have been a blessing to all of God's people in Israel had become their Achilles heel because as he grew older, he grew less self-controlled. His passions enslaved him. And what I want to say today is that Pastor Jeff has served our church with ample self-control. He has always been a calm and measured man. Even in the face of disappointment or discouragement, which can happen in pastoral work and in life, he's treated men and women, young and old, with total respect. He's spent his money with wisdom. He's used his experience and position to raise up, develop, and bless others. He always makes himself the last. Even when Jeff hasn't felt like it, he's put himself in our path so that he can serve us. He's been a self-directed, self-controlled man. You might not know this, but one of the things that Jeff will talk about from time to time is he'll say, my favorite time is when the people are here. And he strategically tries to figure out where to position himself on the church property so that he can interact with as many of you as is possible. And you might have noticed 
that over time, Jeff will develop some kind of banter with you, maybe asking you about a hobby or a child or an interest. All it is for him is a hook to try to get into your life because he cares about you. But I've seen him in times where he's tired and fatigued and probably doesn't want to go out on that patio and could easily go hide in the offices, refuse to make that decision. He's continually been a self-controlled servant of a man. But lastly, to wrap this up today, Paul said that older men should be sound, number four, in the areas of faith and love and steadfastness. What, what does that mean to be sound? Uh, to be sound is to be healthy, to be true, to be whole, to be well-grounded. And the three categories that Paul thought that older men should be sound in, they're actually categories that are repeated throughout the whole New Testament. You guys have heard that perfect, the, the trifecta, faith and hope and love. These are the three main things that Christians want to be known for and want to grow in, faith and hope and love. Paul mentions all three of those here, but he does make one slight alteration. Notice that he says the older man should have faith, love, and steadfastness. Why doesn't he say hope? Well, because an older man who is godly, his hope has been turned into a soundness so much so that it's now an action, steadfastness and endurance. The idea here is that the, oldly, the older godly man has fully entered into and embraced the pillar attributes of Christianity. And that's who we've known Jeff to be. He's strong in the faith. That means that he's, he understands the Bible. He's mature in the truth of Scripture. His doctrinal convictions are not strange but sound. He's also strong in love, meaning he's adopted a lifestyle that is completely other-centered. He does not spend his time completely on himself, but he wants to go to his grave loving other people. And he's strong in steadfastness, meaning he's not thrown in the towel on life, but is pressing with hope into what God is doing here on earth. You know, when Jeff prays, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he believes and toils for that kingdom. Jeff does not sit alone in his living room watching cable news, bemoaning everyone and everything, waiting for the day that the rapture happens. Instead, though he looks forward to the return of Christ, he works hard to bring Christ to people today, believing wholeheartedly in the power of the gospel for salvation to all who believe. Now I want to wrap this up today before we celebrate Jeff by sharing my heart about this man. To me, he is the man that Paul describes. Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. And for these last 15 years here and last 50 years for the church at large, Jeff has been nothing but a gift. He's been, in, on one hand, a pillar for us to lean on, but he's also been a vision for us to acquire. Many of us have thought about our future and we've looked at his godliness and said, I want some of that in my life in the years to come. But for however he's blessed you, maybe it was a moment where you needed counsel at a difficult time in your life. Maybe it was a time you just needed a smiling face. Maybe it was a time you needed a prophetic word, someone to speak into your life. 
However much he's blessed you, what I just want to say publicly as I wrap up this sharing time or this teaching is that he has blessed me a hundred times more than he's blessed any of you. Not to brag, but he's been a much bigger blessing in my life than he's been in yours. You know, he, he took a huge step of faith 15 years ago to return to the Monterey Peninsula where he grew up to assist me in the work of pastoring this church community. And I'm so glad that he did. I was 29 years old and I needed a friend like him at that moment in my pastoral work. And I know that his trust was in God in that moment. And I'm sure I did things and said things that made him throw himself upon God's throne more than he ever had up to that point. You know, he was hoping that he could partner with me and that I would make wise decisions that would turn out well. In a sense, I like to say that God used him at a key moment in my life to serve as my training wheels pastorally helping me find my balance as a local church pastor. I can't tell you how many times his prayers for me or his support for me, his advice to me, his counsel to me, his correction to me, his presence and listening ear for me have made a world of difference in the way that I've gone about this work. And now I'm so blessed that He's going to go out into his retirement years sharing a little bit of what he gave me with other pastors because I know how much they're going to benefit. So the next time that someone tells you that all men are toxic or that all Christians are hypocrites or that all pastors are abusive, I want you to remember Jeff Buck. He's only one star in a galaxy of men and women who have faithfully served their God and this world, but we are thankful that he has broadcast his light here for this little church. Now, Ephesians 4 teaches that when Jesus ascended back to the Father after his resurrection, he poured out gifts on the church. These gifts are described as apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And Jeff, as a pastor, has been a significant gift that Jesus decided to give us as a church. And since the Bible tells us to give honor to whom honor is due, I would like us right now to show Jeff our appreciation for his labor and sacrifice as we pray for him today. So would you guys welcome the man, Jeff Buck, to the platform. He has such a big ego. I know he loves that a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you. It is a blessing to um, acknowledge that and give that uh, praise back to God. If you'd have known me at 16 when I got saved, and then at 18, when I was called in December of 72 
to be a pastor, you would have said he'll never make it. Shy and uh, insecure and unsure of, of everything, except that God was calling me, and this is my definition of pastoring, to take care of people. That's what I do. I just try to take care of people and point them toward solutions, whether I have them or someone else has them. And for so many of you, uh, I probably know 40%, 50% of the people in the room, and I've had that pleasure of trying to steer you toward the Lord first and toward uh, whatever solutions I might have. Nate has grown incredibly in the 15 years I've known him privately as well as publicly. Just incredible growth. And many of you have been here all through those years and you've seen his growth and his ability to uh, teach the word and relate to people and all of that. And for those, yeah, let's give him a round. That would be, that would be wonderful. You dirty dog. And, and you're very fortunate. We are very fortunate to have him as a pastor. I will still be attending here, accountable here, so I'll have that blessing as well. But if I could just say, as I did in the first service, a word. There are so many. Of course, most people are younger than I am. But there are many uh, young people here in the room. And I just want to tell you to do exactly what I did. I wouldn't ever tell you to do anything that I haven't done. At age 18, I dedicated my life to serve God and love God and allow him to take my life wherever he wanted it to go. And to put it in a kind of a crass way, it pays such dividends to love and serve God. The, the ways he blesses you and the places he takes you and the stuff that happens to you, you never could have engineered for yourself. You know, you like adventure? God will give you that. You like stability? God will give you a measure of that, although he tends to keep you off your, keep you from getting lazy. But as young people, learn young. Just love and serve God and throw yourself into his kingdom. And to us as older people, I'm not a look back kind of guy. I really have always wanted to look at what is, what's, what's next? Where's the road going to go? I don't look, look back that much um, because I've done so many boneheaded things in my life, and Nate has painted a far uh, greater picture of than, I, than I would have deserved. But I want to encourage you, love God, serve God, and I'll be darting in and out when I'm not out doing things to encourage you myself. I start the new phase tomorrow, strengthening the churches. You have the website there on that little card. And my first event is this Saturday, Walnut Creek, a marriage seminar. But thanks for being my church family in these past 15 years and in the future. And thank you for your way too kind words. Hmm. We love you, man. Thank you. Yeah. For those of you who have ever uh, been in a physical battle or war, you know how close you get with the people that you fight with alongside, and uh, I feel that that must be emblematic to at least some degree of the way I feel about you, brother. Mm. It's been great to fight together, to strive together for God's best. We've been through some battles. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> but we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> Can we pray for you? Yeah. All right, let's all stand together and pray for, for Jeff.
Lord, you're so good. It's just wild to me that you weaved our paths here in this church together with this man. And Lord, we are thankful to you for the wonderful years that he's pastored us so well. Lord, we pray for the future years that are in front of him, believing, Lord, and trusting you that they're going to be everything that he's envisioned. Lord, we pray that you'd give him great fruitfulness with children and grandchildren and just incredible memories and uh, pouring into that next generation in his family. But also, Lord, we pray that you'd open doors for him with other pastors, uh, young and old, that he could encourage, support, uh, be a breath of fresh air for them in a time of need, a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray for that. Stand with his body, his mind, his soul. Give him the physical strength that he needs, the mental strength that he needs, the spiritual strength that he needs. Watch over him, Lord. We pray that you'd bless him and Denise and, Lord, that the marriage years in front of them would be the sweetest years of their entire marriage. Lord, we commit him into your hands, praising and thanking you, Lord, for such a shining light of your grace. Thank you for what you've done in him. We pray, Lord, that you do it more and more in us. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. 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 You can go ahead and run, because I know you want to get out there. Jeff is going to be uh, outside, so he'll be uh, greeting everyone. Are you going to be in the Welcome Center, or are you going to be on the patio? He'll be on the patio. That's his domain. We're gonna, I'm thinking maybe we'll rename it the Jeff Buck Memorial Patio. Because that's his spot, that's where he works. So say hi to him and uh, bless him on your way out today. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.